This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. up on Hosea again. We're looking at the exact same passage we looked at last week. There's just so much great stuff, and I have got an exciting voice. We're going we're gonna to get there. It's fine. So we're going to pick up on it's Hosea 2, and it's verse 14, and I'll start by reading it again to you. Um, Therefore, I'm now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards, and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond, as in the days of her youth. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lip. No longer will, she, uh, will their names be invoked. In that day I will make a covenant for them, with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and the creatures that move along the ground, bow and sword and battle. I will abolish from the land so that all may lay down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies and they will respond to the earth and and they will respond to the grain and new wine and olive oil and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not not my loved one. I will say, to those called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. It's an exciting passage, Um, and uh, we looked at at last week how this combats, this love poured out uh, by God combats our loneliness. It comes in and and integrates into the uh, disparate lives we lead. And this week, I want to talk about how this passionate love of God transforms our view of faithfulness. I don't know if you uh, saw in the press this week uh, a company called Ashley Madison, which I guess most of you wouldn't have heard of. I hope none of most of you haven't heard of prior to this week. Ashley Madison is a, uh, a website, it's a dating website for married people. Um, and um, their logo might appear. And uh, this is their tagline, life is short, have an affair. Okay, they appeared in the press because someone has hacked their website and taken all of the details of the people on that website and is threatening to release them into the general populace. I, it caught my eye, because in the article I was reading, it said that in the UK alone, they have 1.2 million members. 1.2 million people are currently terrified that their spouses are going to find out that they are on this website. What's shocking is that Ashley Madison has another two websites uh, called Established Men and Cougar Professionals, which do exactly the same thing. 
What's shocking is that there are, if you search, uh, aff- I did this and I told my wife and she was there. If you, assert, if you search for affairs dating on Google, every, you'll come up with 15 other websites which will help you do the same thing. Some of them boasting more than a million members. Whether this website, they're the same million people on a lot of websites, I don't know. Um, but I, I read this article, uh, it was an interview in The Sun with the founder of Ashley Madison. And uh, he's a guy called Noel Biderman. Now, you'd think he was a right old sleazeball, and really he is a right old sleazeball. It's an awful thing to have set up this website. But he is happily married with two children. He's been married for 13 years, and neither of them cheat on one another. Noel Biderman uh, told uh, the Sun newspaper, British adults were most likely to have an affair, more likely to have an affair than any other comparable country. So he's based in Canada. This is a global, uh, global website. And he says that it's British people who are most likely to have affairs. He admitted he would be heartbroken if his wife were to cheat and would rather not know. He said, I would feel devastated. I'm not trying to minimise anyone's reactions to finding out their partner has been unfaithful. And he runs that with his wife, this website. She's uh, called Mrs. Biderman. And she... Uh, said she could never see herself having a fling, adding, there's a, lot, there's a lot that you lose when a nuclear family isn't intact, and a lot to risk around the kids. It's amazing. These two people have set up this website, and they see what a devastating thing they've done. Um, they've done it because they turned over £71 million last year. They're going to float on the stock market later on this year at a value of about £120 million. That's a shocking amount of money to make out of unfaithfulness. Um, and I thought, well, is that, is that it? Is it one million people? Is that the total? Because that seems premeditated to me, and I guess most affairs aren't premeditated. I guess people don't sit at home and think, I'm going to join this service. Well, 1.2 million people clearly do. But others, I'm assuming it just happens. And in fact, um, there was a YouGov survey earlier this year which found out that one in five people has admitted to having an affair, and one in three has seriously considered having affairs. Unfaithfulness is rife in our society, yet we long to find someone who will be faithful to us. Like the Bidermans, we can see that society is full of this. For them, it's a good business opportunity. But they don't want that for themselves. They want faithfulness. Um, And it's not... um, and maybe you've been caught up with unfaithfulness. I don't know, maybe uh, you've been cheated on or you've cheated on someone else. Maybe your marriage has survived and you've worked it through by God's grace or maybe it's destroyed your marriage. Maybe uh, you're in the situation where you're fat, your parents cheated on one another. I remember when I was uh, 15 finding out that the youth leaders in our church were two married couples and one of them was sleeping with the other. It, it, it devastated me personally. And I would say of the 30 or so young people, only two or three are still going for God. But mainly because of that devastating lack of trust. Um, so I'm sure most of us have in one way or another had this effect, uh, impact our lives. Um, but it's not a new phenomenon. phenomenon. 400 years ago, a guy called Jeremiah Burroughs, preaching on this same passage I'm preaching on, said this. There is often great dissimulation. I had to look up dissimulation. I'm sure the rest of you know what it means. But it kind of means lying, uh, deceitfulness. 
Um, so there is often great dissimulation or deceitfulness in marriage, great promises and overtures of what one should enjoy in the other. And when they do not meet what they expect, expect it causes great dissension between the parties and it makes their lives very uncomfortable. He goes on to say, guilty hearts are full of suspicions of God's real meaning in all his expressions of love and mercy. They judge God by themselves. This morning, my goal is to convince you that despite what we've experienced in life, despite what we've done to God, God has always and will always be faithful towards you. And that this morning, you can come to him in full confidence. I think one of the other reasons we sometimes feel that God isn't faithful is because of the circumstances of our lives. Things don't go the way we planned. Uh, we were talking about it this morning. Things are not how you, probably your life is not how you viewed it would be five years ago. Uh, we've, um, thank you so much for praying for Beth and I brought her up last week. My daughter, she came out of hospital on Wednesday and is doing excellently. Uh, she was desperate to be left at home today on her own. Uh, we didn't, that's why I'm here on my own instead. Uh, but she's doing great. But actually, those sorts of things make you question, is God faithful? Is he faithful? He says he's faithful. And, and, and we see her in our own hearts, our own unfaithfulness, and we think, well, I'm unfaithful, and my life doesn't seem to be going the way it should, what I wanted it to be. So is God faithful? What, how do we base, how do we know that God is faithful? And that's where we're going to go this morning in this passage in Hosea. Um, It points to a glorious thing that is going to happen in the future from Hosea's point of view. Uh, So we looked last week at this couple, Hosea and Goma. Hosea uh, was called by God to be a uh, prophet, a sort of vicar, 4,000, whatever it is, 3,000 years ago. Uh, and he was called to be this. And his first, the first thing God told him to do in his new ministry was go and marry a promiscuous woman. Um, and he went and did that. And um, it wasn't the wonderful, amazing, transformed life that he expected, I suspect. Because Goma couldn't really handle not being a promiscuous woman anymore. And she went back to a life of prostitution. Um, some possibly in the temples. We find out later she definitely had a pimp. Um, and she started having kids, uh, which we think probably weren't Hosea's. They were other people's. Um, and he gives them names like not my people, which is, gives us a hint that perhaps they weren't his kids, right? Um, and so, we, uh, so, so that's what happened there. And, and the reason that story is in the Bible and reason God said to Hosea to do this kind of weird thing was that he said, this is how I feel about Israel. Israel was the nation Hosea lived in, the nation he was prophesying to. And God said, this is how I feel about you. This is what you've done to me. You have gone off and followed other gods. God had brought them out of Egypt. You probably know the story through the Red Sea. He'd given them commandments. He'd established them in the best bit of land on the whole earth. They could have had the greatest nation on earth, but they could not be faithful to God. They kept going off after other gods. We read in the passage there, the Baals, the masters. And they kept going off after these other gods, even though God provided for them endlessly. And the reason for all the stories of Israel, the Bible says, is so that we can know how Jesus feels about us, about me and you. And that's a pretty tough reality, isn't it? And we looked at last week how actually we, 
uh, need to try and view that without our insecurities and without our prejudices. But actually, that's what we've done to God. We've gone off on our own way. He, he gave us everything. He gave us life. He gave us uh, wonderful things, and we have turned our back on him. And so that's the situation Hosea and Gomer find themselves. It's the way Israel found themselves, and it's the situation we have found ourselves into. And into that, Hosea speaks these brilliant, wonderful, amazing, life-changing words. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 15. He says, There I will give her back the vineyards. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond, as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. Now, Achor means trouble. And the valley of Achor was on the edge of uh, the nation of Israel. And um, yeah, so so that in and of itself, the valley of trouble, we get a picture there. Uh, But actually, Achor had historical significance to the people reading this. Achor, um, there was a guy uh, called Joshua, who you've probably read about uh, in the Bible. And he was the leader of the people of Israel when they first came into the land. And uh, he led them round the walls of Jericho. You know this from Sunday school. He marched them around seven times. The walls fell. It was amazing. And one of the commands God gave the people was, don't take any of their sacred items. Don't take any of their gods, anything like that. You just go, sack the city, and take the land. And a man called Achan thought, well, God just won't notice. I will take some stuff, and I will hide it under my tent, and it'll be okay. And no one knew only Achan. And um, so a few weeks later, they go to this battle, much smaller than Jericho, uh, a place called, I think it's AI, it's spelled AI, could be pronounced A, I suppose, or um, perhaps some Hebrew scholars will tell us later. Or I, we're going with I? I don't know. I, you're going with? And uh, they go for this battle and they are massacred. Thousands of them die. And um, Joshua goes to God and says, but God, you said that we would take the land. You said that this would be, uh, you'd just go before us. And we remember what happened at Jerusalem. Why did this happen? And God says, because there is someone in your ranks who has sinned. And that sin has gone out throughout the camp. And and, and it's there. It's in everything. And um, God says, you need to find him out. And and the people come before and they go down and down and down until they find out it's Achan. And God says, you need to stone Achan. So in the valley of trouble, in the valley of Achor, they stone Achan for the, sins of God, for the sins of the people. He dies so that they no more will be massacred. Now, it's an interesting story, and I'm happy to debate with you later the morality of that story and why would God do that. But it's there as a picture for us of something that would happen 4,000 years later. A guy called Jesus, who was without sin, he wasn't like Achan at all. He comes and he goes to the place of the skull. And he dies on the cross for the sins of the people. See, on the cross, the valley of trouble, the place of the skull, becomes a doorway of hope for us. No longer are we outside of what God wants for us. But actually, we can have a new life, a new day. And so for Goma, Hosea is saying, all of that trouble you have brought on us, I'm going to make it a door of hope. I'm going to make it a new vision for Israel, a new vision for us and for our family. 
Just like Jesus comes and on the cross, he says, here on the cross, at the place of the skull, in the valley of trouble, I will make a doorway of hope. And he starts, we start to get a picture of God's faithfulness. We start to get a picture of a God who, despite our unfaithfulness, comes and says, I'm going to make a door of hope. We'll move on. We're going to leap down to verse 19. And God says this, in, there's this interesting passage. It says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you would acknowledge the Lord. Now, you might, in, in Hebrew poetry, in Hebrew writing, they have these little um, affectations which help us understand what they're trying to get at. Now, when they repeat a word, it, they're saying, this is really important. So, there's, so often you'll see that in the Psalms, he'll repeat the words or he'll repeat them at two different places and say, look, this bit in between is really important. And occasionally we get words repeated three times, which means it's really, really important. So um, when Isaiah meets God, the angels sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they're saying, this is really important attribute of God. He's holy. He's really, really holy. And so here in Hosea, the fact that this word betroth is repeated three times, he's saying, this is a really important concept. I really want you to get this. He's not just saying it for prettiness sake, and it is a nice piece of poetry. He's actually saying, you are betrothed. You're really betrothed. You're so betrothed. Now, we don't use the word betrothed very much, um, partly because we don't have it as a concept. We don't do betrothal, really. Um, our closest is engagement, but engagement is quite a loose promise, uh, particularly in our society. People can be engaged but have no intention of getting married. Seems like an interesting prospect. But in, uh, in, in Bible times, betrothal was like engagement plus. It, it was a promise. It was a sure and firm promise. You could not be betrothed and then not get married. Once you were betrothed, you were set apart for that person. You're enga- you wouldn't have had an engagement ring, but the same thing meant, that's it. I'm off the market. We're both off the market. We are betrothed. We're going to get married. We're going to have kids. This is happening. Okay? It's like marriage without the benefits. Yeah, you don't live together. You don't sleep together, but you're married, apart from the fact you haven't done a ceremony and you don't sleep together. That's kind of it. That's betrothal in, in, this, in the Old Testament times. And, um, and so, so Hosea says to Goma, I'm going to betroth you, which is an interesting thing to say to your wife. Yeah? Because they're married. So to say I'm going to betroth you is weird because that's the stage before marriage. But what betrothal really, so what he's really saying to you is I'm going to make it as if none of this happened. We're going to start afresh. Clean slate for you, Goma. You have gone and you've been a prostitute even though I married you. I married you when everyone said, don't. When everyone said, she's a promiscuous woman. I married you. And then you went and you carried on and you become a prostitute and you've got a pimp and I'm going to have to buy you back. He says, I'm going to betroth you. So it will be as if that never happened. No matter what all the people say about us, to me, we're starting afresh. It's new. And so it doesn't just make their relationship new, it makes Goma new. It transforms her from being a prostitute. The guy Jeremiah Bravo loves to call her a whore. 
He says she's a whore, and he saved her from her whoredom, which is more aggressive, isn't it? But, but, and I don't like using it because it is so aggressive. But th- that's the sort of the image, the visceralness of it, that she's a prostitute. And he says, no more. Now you are just betrothed to me. You're just the wife of a prophet of God. That's your new status. And it's astonishing. And, and betrothal also means that you're made one. No longer are you two separate people. And he's reinstating that for them. He says, we're betrothed. We're one now. Your shame is my shame. Because it would have been shameful. It would be shameful now, right? If Howard had married a prostitute and she'd have carried, carried on in prostitution... We'd have said, well, you're better off without her. We'd have probably said, mate, you've got to step down from leading the church for a bit. Let's get this sorted. But we'd have certainly said, don't go back and marry her. You're nuts. But he says, no, no. Hersh- and, and back then, just back then, he could have stoned her. That was his right. That's what he could have done. He could have had her stoned. But he says, no, her shame, my shame. I don't care what everyone says. I'm going to be one with her. When they look on her, they'll see me. When they look on me, they'll see her. It makes her glorious. It makes this woman who's just, there's no sign that she ever asked him to do any of this for her. He makes her glorious. She takes on his glory. This guy who has done nothing but been great to her, she can, so people, she can walk the streets again, not as a prostitute, but as a wife, as a mum. She gets her kids back. She gets her life back. And what it also says is that, here's a promise. I'm going to be faithful to you, Hosea says. It's a promise of something to come. Betrothal says that we will get married. So there's, I hope, you know, people do those, don't they, second wedding ceremonies. And I don't know if it happened. We don't get any sign of it in the Bible. But there's a sense of actually, we're going to get married again. We're starting everything from scratch. Here's a promise of what is to come. And you've probably noticed that it's what happens for us. At the cross. At the cross, we are made new. Some of you will have, uh, most of you have probably seen baptism ceremonies, services. Ceremonies? That's what they are. Services. And um, we baptise people and they go under the water and they come out again. And it's a sign of being dead and alive again. There's that word, new, uh, uh, born again, which we don't use anymore because it was slightly derogatory in, in the 70s and 80s. But the Bible says we're born anew. We're like a brand new person by the cross, by Jesus' faithfulness to us. We're made one with him. Our shame becomes his shame on the cross. All the terrible things you ever did put on him at the cross so that our shame becomes his shame. He who has never done anything wrong becomes sin for us. We are made glorious. He says to the world, if you want to know what I'm like, look at the church. Have you seen the church? Uh, I'm, I'm not nearly as good as Jesus and I'm not convinced I would want to be represented by you lot. Oh, no offence, no, no, I would. I'd love to, you're great. Uh, but there's a sense he's the king of the universe. And he says, you want to know what I'm like? There you go. There's the church. There are a bunch of weirdos and uh, losers and I'm going to be represented by them. That's my plan. So we're made new, we're made one, we're made glorious and there is a promise of something to come. 
And we're in a strange interim period, if you're a Christian, of being betrothed to Jesus. The now and the not yet. There is something glorious to come. There is a wedding day. There is a two become one that we can't even fathom now. That's amazing for us, for me and you, who uh, are so undeserving of that as our future. But there it is, the promise on the cross that one day we will be made one with him. That there will be a wedding ceremony. We will be called his wife. That's exciting, isn't it? That was, for, that was all for um, impact. Thanks. So he goes on to say, you're betrothed in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. Now we get to another bit of, this is a nice bit of Hebrew poetry. I get to teach you lots of Hebrew poetry lessons. Did the clips, it's the clip. Should I change clips? It's going to be distracting otherwise. that way how's that anything yeah good okay boom again so he says i'm going to betroth her in righteousness and justice in love and compassion so there's another bit of hebrew poetry that this is like a couplet these two lines and he's saying these two things are the same thing but from different angles you see it all the time in the psalms if you read the psalms they'll often repeat themselves and say look i'm trying to show you one thing from two different angles And here we get these odd phrases to be doing that with. Righteousness and justice, love and compassion. They seem kind of opposing. Love and just, uh, sorry, righteousness and justice on one side and love and compassion on the other. And it's hard for us to see that they could be the same thing looked at from two different angles. And I'm struggling to see how in Hosea and Gomer's life that worked. I'm even struggling to see how with God and Israel that worked. But I can tell you for sure how it works for us. And I think the reason that I can't find the parallel is that it only happens once in all of history. It is a one-time event when all of these things come together as one thing. You can guess where I'm going, right? The cross. On the cross. Righteousness, justice, love and compassion become the same thing. You're looking at one event from different angles. You see, and I don't know what you think should have happened to Goma. It was weird when I was thinking about this. There's no punishment for breaking your wedding vows. That's weird because it's a contract. And it's a pretty serious contract. If I break any other contract, there are repercussions for me. But it's the one contract which I've signed and is in a church somewhere in Birmingham. I can break without... Legal penalty. I mean, it'd be terrible and devastating for my life. So there is a terrible penalty and cost to pay. But it's weird that there is no legal penalty. In Hosea's day, I said there was, there is a, there was a legal penalty. He could have had Gomer stoned to death. And in some senses, we feel that there is some sort of rightness about that. Perhaps not stoning to death. But what she did to him was terrible. And if you've been cheated on, you know, you feel that that isn't right. And how come that person gets to get off with it scot-free? And we know that 
in, in our own lives that we feel that sense of injustice when people seem, bad people seem to be very rich. It seems wrong that the Bidermans are worth $120 million. That seems wrong because they are not good people. There should be justice in the universe. And we know that there is justice and righteousness and God will bring all things to a close. And there will be justice and righteousness and that people will be judged. And all of us will fall short of that judgment. But God desires to love and have compassion for us. And at the cross, those two things meet because our sins are put on Jesus. God's, righteous, God's righteousness is shown on the cross. Sin is punished once and for all. But God's love and compassion is shown because Jesus died for us. It is the absolute epitome of his faithfulness to us that these two things meet on the cross. And what's more amazing is where they meet on the cross, they then flow down into our lives. And the righteousness and justice that seem to us to be so terrible before we knew Jesus become wonderful to us. Because Jesus from the cross says, you are made righteous, Stan. I know Stan. I know some of the things he does. But Jesus says, Stan is made righteous. Matt is justified. He stands before God and says, I have got, there's nothing wrong. I'm justified. I'm made righteous. We see the love and compassion poured down onto us from the cross. All of those things come and meet at the cross. It's the only point where those, where justice and righteousness and love and compassion appear to be the exact same thing on the cross. And the benefits flow down to us. Finally, Hosea says, I will betroth you in faithfulness. Now it's an interesting thing that um, that, that for us, really, the problem with faithfulness between us and God is not on his side. <laughs> the problem is on our side. We fail repeatedly to be faithful to God. Even the gr- nicest people struggle with this. And I don't know, all of you, I'm certainly not one of the nicest people. I struggle with faithfulness to God on a fairly regular occurrence. The great thing about the cross is that it doesn't really have anything to do with me. Firstly, we are paid for by Christ. In Hosea, we see Hosea goes to uh, Gomer's pimp and says, I'm going to give you everything I have to buy back Hosea. Jesus comes and says the exact same thing for us. I'm going to give everything I have to buy these people, (laughs) these prostitutes, these people who have done nothing uh, for me. And he says, I'm going to buy them for me. I'm going to buy them for righteousness. I'm going to be faithful to them when they have never been faithful to me. The other thing we see at the cross is that this is a contract maintained by Jesus. That's good for us because we're not very good at maintaining that contract with God. Yeah, we see it all through Israel's history. They try and they try and they try and keep that agreement with God to be faithful and they they can't. What's great on the cross is that Jesus comes and holds up both sides of the bargain. You've read that, um, you've probably heard Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. 
And you think that's a concept for us to grasp? But it's a really important thing. Because on the cross, he represents man to God and says, here I am, the representative of a sinful man, pour out your judgment on me. So he represents us. And on the cross, he represents God and says, here I am, dying for you. Here is my love and compassion. This is how you know me. This is how you know who I am. Look at the cross and see me, love and compassion. And actually, it's Christ that continues to maintain that relationship. Forever and ever. No matter what you do, if, Jesus, if you've taken that step of faith, you've crossed that line and says, yes, Jesus, I want all of the benefits of the cross doesn't matter what you do, he maintains the relationship. It's crazy. Religious people can't stand it because it's mental. You don't have to do anything good ever again. And God will still look at you and see Christ. Now the wonderful truth is that through the cross we are transformed. He puts a new heart in us and we we don't want to do bad things. We are transformed from one degree of glory to another. We have the fruits of the Spirit pouring out of our lives. And as we spend more time with Jesus we become more like him and it's wonderful. But the truth is he maintains the contract. No matter what you did this morning, no matter how terrible, you still come before him clean and pure because he looks on you and sees Christ on the cross, dying for you. Romans says, Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He starts it, so Hebrews, he starts it and he finishes it. Jesus will complete our faith. It's his great work. The cross is the promise. It's like a wedding ring, saying, this is it. This is a pro- the cross is so much more than just that, but it is that promise of something to come, something he is going to complete in you. We know that Jesus is faithful because we see it on the cross. I was wondering, I was thinking, what is our response to this? And I guess for me, it's worship. It's worshiping him. But um, Paul, uh, in the book of Romans, outlines what I've just outlined to you far more eruditely, and um, it would have taken us several weeks to have worked through that, uh, for the first eight chapters of Romans. And when he comes to the conclusion, he says this. And we're going to break bread in a minute, and we're going to just remember the cross. Um, and we're going to come, and, and the, the breaking of the bread is Jesus' body broken for us, and we remember what he did. And it should say to you, he's faithful. He has done something so remarkable in the past that he is faithful. And we're going to drink the wine, which is his blood spilled for us. And Paul says this, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered a sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We know, band, you can come back up. We know that Jesus is faithful because we see it in the cross. We see it in everything he does on the cross. Despite us being so unworthy, we know that Jesus is faithful no matter what we face, no matter what goes wrong, no matter what ugliness is in our own hearts. We know that he is faithful to the end because we see it poured out for us in the cross. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.